worship, but this is a full passage. Psalm 36, verses 1 to 12. An oracle is within, within my heart concerning the sylphiness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who you know, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers, evildoers, evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. George. Let me uh, read the opening verses of that psalm again. Um, But as I do so, let me ask you whether this description of a wicked man reminds you of anyone. Perhaps someone on the political scene or a leader on the world stage. Any names or images come to mind. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity can't be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that isn't good He does not reject evil. Without naming any names, did anyone come to mind when you heard? I can see people nodding here and there. Interesting and a little bit worrying, actually. And I suspect were we to conduct a survey to ascertain whose name or image came to mind as we listened to the words of the psalm, there might be quite a few candidates, actually, between us, from various nations and across the political spectrum. And the fact that there are so many potential candidates that fit this description, that makes it even more worrying. We live in dark and potentially dangerous times. Am I justified in taking the opening words of this psalm and inviting you to envisage what well-known political leaders might fit that role? After all, there's nothing to suggest that the psalmist has a leader in mind. 
And we don't know whether the psalm is about a particular person who's being singled out for description, or whether this is just the generic picture of wicked people. Anyone who has no fear of God before their eyes, this is the kind of person that they're going to turn out to be. But maybe, if people have power and have no conception about being accountable to anyone about how they use that power, either God or anybody else, then the corrupting influence of that power that they wield, which is unfettered, naturally leads them to become this kind of person. And while there may be nothing in the opening verses of the psalm to suggest that this wicked person in any way occupies a position of leadership, by the time you get down to verse 11, you find a prayer saying, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. You can't be arrogant unless you think you have power. Um, arrogant people tend to see themselves as powerful people. So while there's nothing to say specifically this wicked person is a leader, I reckon that they probably occupied a position of power. So it's probably legitimate to make this kind of of connection. This is a godless person in a position of authority. And the psalmist is feeling just a little bit vulnerable. There's a real risk of being crushed under the jackboot of the arrogant or being driven into exile at the hand of the wicked. So this is a situation where it feels as if Big Brother is watching you. And if you're going to write a psalm, you don't want to be too explicit about the person that you've got in mind. You, want it, you don't want them to say, well, we know that you wrote this psalm and you are writing about this person. Just a general description will do. Written about a wicked person, everyone can agree that wicked people aren't very desirable people. No one specific is in mind. But you might want to read the opening verses of the psalm and just think, well, if the cap fits, perhaps we should recognise who's wearing it. And then suddenly, all that stops, and the focus shifts. And these are the verses with which we, we open the service. It becomes a psalm of praise. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast. You save, O Lord. It's like the psalmist has switched the news off all bad news on the political scene, and gone out for a walk in the countryside and thought, wow, isn't the world amazing? Isn't our God great? You look at the highest heavens and see the steadfast love of the Lord reflected in the height of them. God's faithfulness reaching up to the clouds. The mountains on the skyline speak of God's righteousness, and the depths of the sea speak of God's judgments. God is creator and saviour of both human beings and animals. And there's a vivid and sudden contrast as the, the focus switches from human wickedness to the goodness of God revealed in creation. Why is that? Has the psalmist just stepped outside and thought, actually, despite everything on the news, God is good? Has the mind wandered, as our minds are prone to do sometimes? Some people have even talked about two different style of psalms fairly clumsily bolted or stitched together here. But look at the qualities of God 
that call forth praise from the psalmist's heart. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, judgments. These are the qualities actually that characterise or should characterise good government and good leadership. The qualities that he sees lacking in the leaders of his or her day are qualities that are found in God. Steadfast love is all about consistency. Faithfulness is all about honesty. Righteousness is all about integrity. Judgments are all about justice. Where there is good government, people in the towns and animals in the countryside alike all live in safety. And maybe having looked at the leaders and found them wanting, the psalmist looks at God and says, all excellence, all perfection, all goodness, all righteousness, all justice is found in God. Can't see it in the government, but we can see it in God, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So maybe the psalmist is saying that above and beyond the flawed system of human government, which is in operation, there is a a higher throne where God is in charge and the created order cannot but speak of his steadfast love, of his faithfulness, of his righteousness and the justice that characterise his kingdom. And by praising God, the corruption of the earthly system of government is thrown into sharp relief. And praise almost becomes a political statement. God is amazing, isn't he? How unlike our leaders God is. This is, of course, one of the reasons why totalitarian regimes crack down on the freedom of religion. Because a celebration of the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness and the majesty and the justice of God cannot but challenge everything that is wrong in a country that is being oppressed. And then the psalm continues. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from your river of delights. God's steadfast love is the most precious thing in existence. Nothing compares with it. And nothing that the current regime can offer by way of reward or incentive for towing the line can compare with knowing what God is really like. And however much people's lives might be overshadowed by government bureaucracy, in the shadow of God's wings, people find a true place of safety and refuge and security. Again, I just wonder, you know, if the psalm is writing, is written in a situation where things aren't right up top and, and there is a sense of oppression, there is a sense of, of, of not being secure in our leaders, saying God is different. You walk past the gated palatial mansions of the ruling classes where none but the favoured few are invited to be wined and died in luxury. And the psalm says God isn't like that. In his kingdom there's no massive disparity between the haves and the have-nots. God's house is available for everyone. Anyone can feast on the abundance of God's house. 
and at feasts and banquets where the best wine flows like water, all are invited to come and drink from God's river of delights. Luxuriate in his welcome. Again, ever so subtly, the psalm of praise to God includes a damning indictment of the excesses of the ruling classes who live themselves in luxury while everybody else is in grinding poverty. God is not like that. God is different. And in verse 9, God is celebrated at the source of life and light. In, for you, with you, is the fountain, the source of life. In your light, we see light. And in God, there is a dimension to life which is beyond the power, the control of the state. And when God's light shines, you see things as they really are, not the way the state-controlled media tells you they are supposed to be. God's light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can neither overcome it nor put it out. This is powerful stuff. The opening verses of the psalm invite us to read it as a declaration of God's praise, written for a time when those in charge have no fear of God before their eyes. There is no overt prayer for regime change. But just by praising God and saying, this is what God is like, there is a challenge to the status quo. It's a psalm of praise written by people and for people in situations of oppression. And as the psalm draws to a close, the distinction between those who fear God and those who don't is clearly drawn out. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Singling out those who know God, singling out those who are upright in heart, asking God to continue his steadfast love and righteousness towards them because in these dark days, those who belong to God find themselves up against it and need to rely on God's resources on a daily basis just to keep going. But if they can know and rely on God's steadfast love towards them, if they can find his righteousness to keep them upright in their own heart, then they can keep the lamp of faith burning in a dark world. The ruling powers may have no time for God and there may be no fear of God before their eyes, yet those who know God, those who are upright in heart, will continue to keep the faith. They will continue to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, which is above and beyond all those who currently occupy the positions of power in their land. The last two verses juxtapose expressions of vulnerability and confidence. Vulnerability. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Confidence. There the evil doers lie fallen. There thrust down, unable to rise. The prayer, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor let the hand of the wicked drive me away. There is a real sense of living under threat here. There's a sense of danger. The awareness, perhaps, that at any moment the authorities could arrive to break down the door and arrest those inside. Praising God under this regime is a dangerous thing to do. There are places in our world where if you gather in the name of Christ, as we have done tonight, you are subject 
to arrest. But the psalmist is not going to stop praising God because the Lord is the fountain of life. And in God's light, the psalmist sees light. And right after that prayer for protection that so clearly expresses just how fragile is the psalmist's freedom to worship God in this way, there is an exclamation that makes it clear that the final outcome is that it's the perpetrators of evil who will stumble and fall. It's they who will be forced to their knees never to rise again. While outwardly there may be no sign of that happening yet, and for the time being the psalmist remains in great danger, But he knows that this is a psalm that someone living in a godless society can pray. It's a prayer which proclaims, this, this is our God. The authorities might not acknowledge him. We might live in a godless, secular society. But nothing changes the reality that God's steadfast love extends to the heavens. His righteousness to the clouds. His steadfast love is like the mountains on the horizon and his justice like the depths of the sea. This is the God who saves his people. This is the God in whom we put our trust. This is the God to whom we belong. This is the God to whom we pray in dark and dangerous days. This is our God.